Join me in your copy of God's Word in the Gospel of Luke once again, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In our continued wait for Christmas, waiting for it to come, even as the people of Israel were, were waiting for their Messiah to be born, so we have been waiting until uh, about now in, in Luke's Gospel, where we see the King finally arrive. Now in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the, the birth of Jesus is told to us. Luke narrates that, and, and he does it in fairly quick fashion. We find that the birth of Jesus happens quickly, quietly. It happens humbly, even almost privately, and certainly in accordance with all that God has promised. In our text this morning, we're going to find that God uses several different individual humans and, and events in human history to bring about his purposes of sending his son to redeem those individuals who trust in him. God uses lots of people and lots of circumstances, even in unexpected ways, to bring about his purposes. As we look at this text together, I hope that we would, uh, as a congregation, ensure that our celebration of Christmas is rooted in, uh, not in the traditions of Christmas, not, not in uh, maybe the carols that we sing, that our celebration of Christmas would not be uh, rooted even necessarily in time spent in, with family, but that our celebration of Christmas would be rooted in our personal reception of Jesus as Lord and Redeemer. Amen. Would you stand with me as we read together Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, that's what will be on the screens behind me. Luke writes this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, his betrothed who was with child, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. May God bless his people, his church, as we study his word. You may be seated. We find here that God uses individual humans and events in human history to bring about his purposes of sending his son to redeem those people who will trust in Jesus. There are two things, two points again that I want to highlight for us this week in the text. And the first is this, that God uses the powerful and the powerless for his purposes. God uses both the powerful and the powerless for his purposes. 700 years before Jesus was ever born, the prophet Micah spoke of a coming redemption for the people of Israel. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah and prophesied during the time of the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so it was that when all of Israel in the north and Judah in the south were in fear for their lives and the future of their people, that Micah, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, promises a coming day of salvation for the people. We read in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, these, these words. Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. 
Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The promise of a shepherd, of a, of a deliverer from Bethlehem was long considered to be a promise about the Messiah himself, God's promised redeemer. This word from Micah was an indication of the Messiah's identity, who he would be and where he would come from. He would be born in the line of David the king and in the very hometown of David the king. What we read in Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 is a description of how God brings that promise to pass, how he makes good on his word. And we see in these verses that God deals with both the powerful and the powerless. He works with both groups of people to bring about his purposes. We find first that God directs the actions of the powerful. God directs the actions of the powerful. Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth in Galilee, a backwater town, and Mary was pregnant with the promised Lord. Now, late in her pregnancy, they had uh, no compelling reason to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. I remember when Nikki was pregnant with our daughters, we always had like a 10-week window. It was like a 10-week no-fly zone. When you're pregnant, so the last five weeks before your due date and the first five weeks uh, after uh, the, the baby is born. Mary was sort of in that no-fly zone area. Nevertheless, God's word through Micah must be fulfilled in her life. And how is it that God brings the mother of the Lord to Bethlehem during that period of her pregnancy when she probably shouldn't have been traveling? Well, God does it by an order from none other than the emperor of Rome himself, Caesar Augustus, executed by various governors and regional rulers of the empire. This edict that Caesar Augustus gives out is likely a tax registration that would require men to travel to the towns where they were landowners to register for taxes. Now don't miss this point today, that what is intended to serve the revenue stream of the empire of Rome, God uses to serve his saving purposes and his prophetic word. Caesar Augustus. Quirinius, and every other person of power and governance in between are personally seeing to the financial survival of Rome through taxation, which in many places was unjustly executed by corrupt tax collectors, as we know. But unwittingly, these very people, Caesar, Quirinius, all of the the centurions and soldiers and tax collectors, all in between are the very means by which God gets the yet unborn Messiah to Bethlehem to be born in fulfillment of his promise. Are you a person of power? Are you a person of influence or authority? Do you have the ability to govern or to to give orders and direct the actions of others, either in work or in your home or in your family? If so, you have a choice to make. Whether you will exercise your authority to intentionally work out the purposes of God in your life and the purposes of the gospel in the lives of those around you, or to be unwittingly used in spite of yourself for God's purposes. Certainly, there's virtually no way that Caesar Augustus would have known of this promise from God through Micah about this Savior who will be born in Bethlehem, nor of the individuals Joseph and Mary. Caesar would have no idea who these people from this backwater town of Nazareth would have been. 
but God's constant use of those in power to bring about his purposes continues here in this narrative. We who have the benefit of seeing how God uses those with power and authority, we do well to determine whether we will intentionally serve God with our authority or to be unintentionally used, perhaps even against our own will, to bring about God's sovereign purposes. Luke shows and teaches us that in the birth of Jesus, God directs the actions of the powerful. But he also shows us that God preserves the powerless. God preserves the powerless. Just as surely as God is sovereign over the most powerful, so also does he rule and reign over the powerless. Joseph and Mary were about as powerless as anyone could be in the Roman Empire. Neither of them held places of prominence in the government. Neither of them were wealthy. Both of them were subject uh, to the ruling authorities in their day. And still, both are obedient to God. Matthew's Gospel tells us more about the man Joseph himself and his willingness to obey God in, in marrying Mary, even though her miraculous pregnancy has made their relationship rather complicated. This obedient couple is obedient also to the ruling powers of their day. Surely it was inconvenient for them to leave Nazareth to travel to Bethlehem. Late in her pregnancy, this 90-mile journey would have been quite uncomfortable for the teenaged pregnant Mary. When they do get to Bethlehem, Mary begins to go into labor. Now, the inns where travelers would stay in those days were, were not even as nice as a Motel 6. You might would be lucky if they would leave a light on for you. These were, rarely were, were there private rooms in these hotels, in these inns. Most of the time it was a, a large common area with a, probably a fireplace somewhere in the middle where everybody who was traveling would, you'd pay a price to stay the, in a place overnight and everybody would dress and, and bathe and eat kind of all together and in front of other people. Birthing a child in a public place like that has almost never been a culturally normal activity. Someone, perhaps the off-maligned innkeeper himself, turns to this young couple and offers them the privacy of, uh, of some sort of private room. Possibly a stable in a nearby cave. Possibly a, a room, maybe even in his, his own personal dwelling. But somewhere away from all of the people that they can have for themselves for the delivery of this baby. And so the Lord is born to poor and powerless parents in a town that's not his own, without the help of midwives, in the humble privacy of, of an unused, stable, a private family dwelling. Everything about his birth screams powerless. And yet, all are preserved by God and for his purposes. This powerless little family is preserved by God because of God's purposes that that will be completed in their lives, fulfilled in their lives. The son of God's birth in a manger in Bethlehem is not an accident. His humble coming in this way is, is all by design. The eternal son of God chooses to be born in the humblest, most modest, unassuming, and meekest of ways to show just how willing he was to identify with those who are also humble, who are also modest, who are also unassuming, uh, unassuming, who are also meek, and most especially to identify with those who are powerless. Are you powerless today? Is your whole life lived at the beck and call of somebody else? 
Do you find yourself in a position where you have virtually no control over your job or your economic status? Dear friend, know this today, that the eternal Son of God chose to add humanity to His existence in the most unpretentious way possible. He came as a servant, identifying with servants. He came lowly to identify with the low. He came as a civilian in an empire governed by military might to present himself to those who are also oppressed. If you are powerless today, know that at Christmas, the glorious God of creation took on flesh in a stable, laid in a manger to say, I have come to rescue you. So Christian, friend, whether you are powerful or powerless in this life, Know this today. God has sent His Son to rescue you from your sin. Many things in this life have been called the great equalizer. Capitalism, communism, education, even death have all been referred to as those forces of life that have that singular ability to place all people on the same plane, on a, on a level playing field. But biblically, we know that none of these is true. In capitalism, not all are successful. In communism, those in power tend to find themselves, as George Orwell said, more equal than others. Education is not the same across all demographics, that that is sure. Even in death, we're not all the same. Because for some, death leads to eternal life, and for others, eternal separation from God. Now, the great equalizer, friends, is not any of these things. But the great equalizer is a part of our very design and creation by God. The great equalizer in this world is the image of God that our creator himself has imprinted upon our souls. That image, which was distorted by our sin, is what Christ puts on flesh to give his life to restore. Powerful or powerless in this world, you have been made to know your maker and to worship him willingly and lovingly. Powerful or powerless, Jesus, the son of God, came to rescue you. Not to rescue you from poverty, not to rescue you from sickness, not to rescue you even from uh, uncertainty, but to rescue you, to save you from your sin, which separates you from your loving father. And this offer is for all. Rich or poor, healthy or sick, great or small, Jesus came for you. Know that today. God uses both the powerful and the powerless for his purposes. This text this morning teaches us also that God intends for his purposes to be received personally. He intends for his purposes, for his plan, for his work of redemption to be received personally. The birth of Jesus, as narrated here in Luke, is intensely personal, especially for Mary and for Joseph. Take in the whole of the the picture here for just a minute. Young Mary, who nine months earlier was visited by the angel Gabriel, this young teenage girl, fully pregnant, has just given, or formerly pregnant, has just given birth to the promised Savior of the world. Joseph is a young man who several months before almost divorced Mary before they were ever even married. But he was visited by an angel we know from Matthew's gospel, instructing him not to fear, but to take Mary as his wife with the confidence that the child conceived in her was of God and and not the result of an illicit affair. 
This Joseph, whom God has chosen to be the earthly father to the Son of God, has just helped deliver this fragile baby into the world. A fragile baby upon whom the hopes of an entire nation, an entire world, rest. And Mary, like any other mother, would rightly want to have delivered her firstborn son into the world in a place of comfort and safety with the help of others experienced in delivering children. Here now she must content herself to deliver the Christ child in a place that is far from home. And Joseph, who likely had never even been in the room when a baby was born, men didn't usually stay in the room when their children were being born in that day. They weren't quite as involved uh, in the birthing process as fathers are today. Joseph, who had never been even in a room when a baby was born, is now charged with the delivery duties. Can you imagine the panic? Can you imagine the chaos taking place? All the fears and stress and anxiety that that rushed through the veins of these young parents. And then all at once, it's over. Jesus is born. He lets out a, a cry as his lungs fill for the first time with the cold, alien air of our atmosphere. His parents, who are very nearly just as fragile as he, swaddle him and, and lie him in a feeding trough to sleep. And there they are. Two young inexperienced, beleaguered, and elated new parents taking in the fact that the cooing creature in the manger nearby is not just any baby, but the very Son of God. Now, I've had the awesome pleasure of helping to bring all three of my daughters into this world. Now, to be sure, I was in the delivery room and, and, and got to, to help to help the, the girls, you know, to, to be born. I didn't do any of the hard work. My wife and the doctors did all the hard work. Um, but, but I was there to stand by and help a little, to watch my wife labor and love to deliver our beautiful girls, to, to be the first person to hold their slippery bodies like zip, Ziploc bags full of jello and, and hand them to their smiling mother. What an awesome privilege. I've had, the th- I've had three times over the joy of holding my newly swaddled girls, singing and praying over them and hoping in God for all the things that their lives might hold. And yet, as great as those experiences are, none of them came with the promise of who they would be, of who my daughters would become, who my children would grow into, like the promise that Mary and Joseph had received with Jesus. They take in the weight of this moment. There by that manger they knew. They knew this Jesus would would not become the Messiah, but that he already was. Not that he had potential to save his people from their sins, but that he certainly would save his people from their sins. Now, if I were Joseph in this situation, I would be having the panic attack to end all panic attacks. Faced with the responsibility of all that comes with being the the adoptive father to the Son of God, I don't know that I could have received him. I don't know that I could shoulder that responsibility. But Joseph does. And so does Mary. They receive him not only as a son, but they receive him as the Messiah. We hear very little about Joseph throughout the Gospels likely because he died before Jesus was uh, an adult and even began his public ministry. But we do hear a lot about Mary. This time of year, the popular song, Mary Did You Know, 
is on the radio and, and, and sung in many places. And every time I hear that song, I always want to answer the question for the singer. Yes! Yes, she knew! Mary, did you, yes, she knew. Gabriel came and told her everything that was going to happen. Yes, she knew. So when you hear Mary, did you know in your car on the way home from church today, you'll probably t- be tempted to scream, yes, of course she knew. Read the Bible. It's, an, it's a nice song. We hear very little about Joseph in the rest of his life, but we hear a lot about Mary. We hear a lot about Mary who knew that her son would be the Messiah. We learn about Mary that she fled to Egypt with Joseph and the infant Jesus to save Jesus' life in Matthew 2. We learn about Mary that she had other children with Joseph even after Jesus was born in Matthew 13. We learn that Mary herself, the mother to the Son of God, even doubted and questioned Jesus' ministry and identity in Mark chapter 3. We learn from John chapter 2 that Mary recognized Jesus' authority. John 19 tells us that Mary was one of only a handful of people at the foot of the cross where her son hung crucified. And after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, she was present with the other disciples, praying and seeking God's will before Pentecost in Acts chapter 1. Mary most certainly dealt with the realities of who her son was. Mary knew, and she grappled with that truth. And eventually, over the course of her life, submitted her life even to her own son as Lord. She wrestled with the truth of his identity as Messiah like many of us do. The the gospel writers don't hide that fact. But in the end, we find a woman who, although she was the mother of the Messiah, saw her need to repent of her sin and to submit to her son, Jesus, as Lord and Redeemer. Friends, if Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to go through the necessary process of personally receiving Jesus as Lord, what possible reason can we have to excuse ourselves from doing the same? If she, the the woman who bore him in her womb and delivered him in Bethlehem, had to grapple with the reality of his identity, had to submit to him as Lord and King, dear friend, what excuse do we have not to grapple with the same truth? This much is true, that before you can properly celebrate the birth of Jesus this Christmas, you must receive him personally as Lord. Before you can properly, rightly, appropriately celebrate Christmas and all that it reminds us of in Jesus' birth, before you can do that in any right state of heart and mind, you must first receive him personally as Lord. Now, I know that many of us in this room this morning have done exactly that. We have received Jesus as Lord, and and we enter into this Christmas season with all of the right sense of joy and rejoicing and celebration of the birth of our Messiah, of our Redeemer, of the one who saves us from our sin. But in a room this big with this many people, there's always, always the likelihood that someone has not yet received Christ as King. Dear friend, if that is you this morning and you're going into this Christmas season, celebrating Christmas for all of the, the trees and, and, and the lights and the gifts and the time with family, those are not bad things to enjoy. But know this, that if those are the only reasons for your celebrating this Christmas, you have missed the most important reason. You have the, missed the most critical, the most crucial reason for celebration at this time of year the greatest cause for celebration, the, the, the most correct and appropriate way we can celebrate 
at Christmas is, is in light of the rejoicing that comes when Jesus, the Messiah, is born. Have you ever been invited to the wedding of a couple that you didn't really know very well? Maybe you went as somebody's plus one. Right? As, as lively as the event was and as sweet as the ceremony may have been, and as many people may have been crying tears of joy all around you, you as a, as a guest unknown to the couple, your own celebration at that wedding was hindered by the fact that you didn't know enough about John and Jane to know the deep significance of their union together that day. Yeah, everybody loves a wedding, but it's different when you know the bride and the groom. It's different when you know what they've been through. It's different when you know them personally and, 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 and know that you will even walk beside them as they live out this marital commitment that they make to each other. It's quite something other to be someone sort of on the outside, on the periphery, just sort of looking in on that. You don't get a full sense of the celebration of that wedding. In a similar way, until you've received Jesus as Lord of your heart by repenting of your sin and placing faith in him, in his death and resurrection for your justification, for your right relationship with God, until you have done that, you will always be missing out on the fullness of celebration at Christmas. This season, this year, this Christmas, let this be the year that you celebrate the birth of Jesus rightly, by receiving him as Lord, by receiving Jesus as Lord personally. And receiving Christ as Lord in a personal way is as simple as doing what we've just said. Recognizing that that you have sinned. You've been disobedient to a holy and, and perfect God. That by your sin, your rebellion against him, you've broken relationship, broken fellowship with your creator. Being sorrowful for your sin, you see what God has done to save you from it. That he sent his own son, God clothed in humanity, to give his life on a cross. Dying a death he didn't deserve because he was sinless. Being raised from the dead, he paved the way for us to have new and eternal life with God today and for eternity as we place our faith in Jesus. Turning from our sin to follow him as Lord. You can celebrate Christmas properly this year by receiving Jesus personally as Lord. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of of response to God's word this morning. I'll be standing here at the front, so will Corey, our student minister. If you have any question about what it means to receive Jesus as Lord personally this year, Corey and I want to speak with you this morning, pray with you this morning about how to do that. We, we want you to celebrate Christmas rightly by receiving Jesus personally today, knowing that there's no greater gift you can receive at Christmas than salvation through faith in Jesus. There may be others of you this morning too who, who maybe this morning feel like, I, I just need to, I need to repent in a fresh way. I've been walking with the Lord. I've, I've been trusting Jesus, but man, I just, uh, there's some things that I need to get right with God today and ask him to help me with in my life. Corey and I are here and, and ready uh, to pray with you about those things as well. Whatever it is you need to do in your heart and in your life today to celebrate Christmas properly by receiving Jesus personally, you come and do it. Do it without delay. Do it with boldness. We're praying for you. We love you. And we want to help you walk with Jesus faithfully this Christmas season. Let's pray.